Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you uh, enjoyed uh, a happy Thanksgiving. And this is one of those years, just an odd uh, quirk of the calendar, where um, today is also the first Sunday in Advent. And so it's one of those combining of the two events crashing together in a good way. Uh, please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness and your grace. It is it is life-giving for us to thank you for the works that you do in our lives. Uh, Father, even when we are, are broken, even when, as we have sung uh, a song of invitation for those of us who at times feel unfaithful to you, uh, who, who are sometimes even dragged into your presence and, and brought to church, we know that when we open our heart to you, when we respond to your spirit, and praise you, and we make that sacrifice of praise from a, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. What a privilege, what a grace to know that you accept even that kind of offering. That even, Father, as we stammer out our praise, uh, you receive it, and then lavish upon us your mercy, your grace, your joy, and for those of us, Lord God, who gather with our hearts filled with praise and a true desire and a sincerity to extol and to praise you when we, we look forward to gathering with the saints, we thank you that you receive that worship as well and you affirm your love and your goodness to us. We thank you that we have a, a opportunity every week to glorify your name and especially now as we enter into the Advent season preparing to honor and to worship and to celebrate the birth of our Savior, to remember <clears throat> that God became man, that the Word became flesh, that we might behold in Christ the glory of God the Father, that we might behold in Christ the love, the mercy, the very beauty where once, Lord God, men would tremble at the presence of your glory. You have now, through your gospel, through Christ, shone in our hearts the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. And so we pray that during this Advent season, for all of us, Lord God, we would read your word, we would study the gospels, we would pray, we would behold with the help of your spirit the, the beauty, the glory, the, the majesty of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then see in him the glory of God the Father, and then experience through that the presence and the power and the ministry of your Holy Spirit, that whatever our circumstances may be at this time of year, whatever burdens we have, whatever anxieties, whatever fears, whatever sins would encumber us, they would, O oh Lord God, melt and be melted by your gracious, majestic glory, goodness, mercy, and kindness, that like, like Scrooge, Father, we would be born again and we would see the necessity and the beauty not only of your church, but of worshiping and praising our Lord and Savior who is continuing to build his church for his glory, a dwelling of God in whom the Holy Spirit lives because he lives inside those whom you have redeemed. And we are privileged by your grace to count ourselves among that number as well as privileged and honored to be among those who have good news to tell 
and to share that others who have not yet made that confession would be brought into the fellowship of your son, that they too would glorify your name. Father, help us in this to be faithful always, for we ask and pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. There we are. So <clears throat> we are continuing in our <clears throat> walk through the church covenant. And uh, just, to just to remind ourselves of the necessity of what it means to be a covenant member, uh, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, to belong to uh, a body of Christ. And I, I, face, uh, I find myself in a situation where uh, it's a <clears throat> and having to talk about the necessity and beauty of the church, it's a rather... Uh, it's, a, it's a big topic. <laughs> um, there have been books and volumes written, so I, I'm, it's kind of arrogant to think that in uh, 35, 40 minutes, I'm going to lay out for you the, the full necessity and view of the church, but I will try. Uh, I'm reminded as I begin, there was a, a famous quote by C.S. Lewis talking about the existence of God and the reality of who he is. And, and it goes something like this where Lewis says, I, I believe uh, in God the way I believe in the sun. Uh, not because uh, I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That's sort of a rough paraphrase. And I think the same can be applied uh, when we consider the necessity and beauty of the church. That we believe in the necessity and the beauty of the church, not so much because we see it, but because through the necessity and beauty of the church, we see the activity of God in the world. Uh, it, we've been studying in uh, the Ephesians Bible study, the, the part in Ephesians 3 where Paul talks about God revealing through the church his manifold wisdom, his variegated wisdom being displayed uh, through the church in the fact that he brings together such a diverse group of people from every conceivable background, that he unites diverse groups, disparate groups, people who are broken, people who are in need, people who are arrogant, people who are prideful, people who are humble. And he equips them with his spirit to then go out and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. This is a, a wonderful and marvelous thing when we consider the wisdom of God in doing that. And then Paul says in Ephesians 3 that, it's not as if God sort of scrambled to put this idea of the church together, but it's according to his eternal purpose that he is using the church to display his wisdom, his glory, and his knowledge in the world. It's, it's why Jesus would tell Peter in Matthew's gospel that our confession of who Jesus is is the very foundation on which he will build his church and that his church will be so strong, so powerful, so mighty, despite being seen as small and ineffective, he says, not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. That as the gospel advances, as the church expands in its influence through the proclamation of the gospel, through telling people of its necessity and beauty, that there is no force on heaven and earth or under the earth that will ever come into existence that will oppose and defeat and ultimately destroy the church. It will, it will always be here and it will be here until Christ returns and after he returns. And so it's important to contemplate then the necessity and the beauty of the church. We began this series um, talking about why it's important to have these promises, these covenant promises, what it means then to commit not only to following Christ, but then to follow Christ 
in community. And a couple of weeks ago when um, I preached on the fact that we have our own ministry to engage in, I mentioned uh, the five metrics that uh, Jared Wilson refers to in his book, The Gospel Driven Church. And so I'll put them up on the, the screen for you to look at again. This is these five metrics of a, of a gospel, uh, for measuring the effectiveness, rather, of a gospel-driven church. So he looks at a you know, growing esteem for Jesus, a discernible spirit of repentance, a dogged devotion to God's word, an interest in theology and doctrine, and an evident love of God and neighbor. So we look at this, and then we apply that, those metrics, if you will, to the series. So we would say that in light of the fact that a gospel-driven church has these things, these measurements, a gospel-driven church is also one in which every member values the beauty and necessity of the church. That by doing these things, by developing a growing esteem, by a, a discernible spirit of repentance, a devotion to God's word, an interest in theology and doctrine, an evident love for God and neighbor, that comes at the, the fruit, if you will, of having prized and valued the necessity and beauty of the church. It's why we ask our members, we ask one another, that when our members may find it necessary, either through circumstance or some other reason, to move on from Maranatha to attend another uh, body, we strongly encourage them to fulfill a covenant promise that we will, if we move from this place, unite with another church as soon as possible where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word, where should the Lord lead you to attend another church, that you would carry with you a growing esteem for Christ, a discernible spirit of repentance, a dogged devotion to his word, an interest in theology and doctrine, and an evident love for God and neighbor. We're not saying or asking anyone to make that move, but should the Lord in his will and time um, move you to another place, we would encourage you to do that, to unite with another body. Uh, sometimes you, you move before that happens, but when it does happen, our encouragement to you is to link up and connect as quickly as possible. And so the motivation for that promise then is the, uh, based on the belief in the following big idea for this message that our connection. Uh, and our home in a local church are essential aspects of the Christian life. That we're, it, it's not, it just as it was not good for Adam to be alone in the garden, it's not good for a man or a woman to be outside or, or not have fellowship in a local body if they want to pursue Christ and develop a growing esteem for him and a discernible spirit of repentance and all of those things. Um, <clears throat> that idea of our home and our connection, our essential aspects of the Christian life, really are a restatement of what John says there in verse 4, 3 John. That I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. We would have no greater joy as a church, and certainly as elders, to hear that those who would find it necessary by God's leading to attend another body it would, it would give us great joy to, to know that you are flourishing where God has led you. It also gives us great joy to know that our members are flourishing here and now also because it's a, it's a sign that as uh, your pastors uh, and discipleship group leaders and anyone who is involved in ministry 
that there is a flourishing, a growing, of, uh, and a deepening um, knowledge of Christ and a love for his grace. And so John talks about this. He's, he's writing as an older man. He is writing to this, this church that he loves very, very much. And he regards them as his children. He's likely discipled uh, several of the leaders there as well. <clears throat> and so he commends them by, uh, for the fact that they are walking um, in the truth. And so w- w- what does that mean? Right? What does it mean? Like the, the truth, it's not their truth necessarily, but the truth that he's referring to there is essentially the gospel. So when he says, I rejoice greatly to hear that my children are walking in the truth, he's, tell, he's telling them he is rejoicing the fact that they are continuing to remain faithful to Jesus and the gospel. That they are continuing to practice the very things that John heard from Jesus and then communicated to his church. It's the same message, if you will, that Paul delivers to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, that the things you have seen and heard and learned from me, you would commit to faithful men who would do the same thing. It's, and, he said, and Paul says something similar in his letter to the Philippians. Whatever you have seen, whatever you have heard, whatever you have witnessed that I say and do by virtue of the gospel, continue in that. He says the same thing Paul does in his letters to the Thessalonians. So there is this constant theme. And it starts with Jesus, obviously, because he tells the disciples in John 14 that when I go and the Holy Spirit comes, you will, through his power and through his enabling, do even greater works than I have done in terms of expanding the gospel and reaching others. So for John to know that at the, uh, near the end of his life, that men and women into whom he has poured his life are continuing to walk in the very truth that he has poured into them brings him great joy. It's, if you're a parent, um, and I know several of you are, your children are young, but those of us whose children are older, and we see them walking in the truth, we pray for them, there's a great sense of joy and thanksgiving to know that they are walking in the truth. Because, I'll be the first to admit, not being a perfect parent, for my children to continue walking in the truth, that is an act of grace. And and John, I think, is communicating that as well. That it it is certainly due to his faithfulness as a minister of the gospel, to train and disciple these people. But he also recognizes that through his, despite his own imperfections as a leader, as a teacher, as an elder, as a pastor, his children continue walking in the truth. So there's a double joy. There's a joy in the sense that God is doing this great thing and there's a joy in the sense that God is doing this great thing in spite of whatever weakness John would have. And so we raise our children and we want to raise them properly. We want to raise them in the, in the knowledge of God. But I, I'll tell you this from experience as well. You can get yourself all bound up by wondering and, and pressuring yourself to get every single thing right. Let me relieve you of that obligation. You are going to make mistakes. And you're going to make 
big mistakes. God is bigger than your mistake. God is bigger than any mistake you can make. What is required when you make the mistake is the humility to acknowledge it. I remember a time, and I'll, I'll, get, to my, I'll get to the passage. I remember a time when Jill and I, I don't even remember what the reason for the argument was, but it was, it was such that I just, I remember storming out of the house. And we, were, we had just moved to Canada, and it was the middle of the winter, and I stormed out of the house, and I went out to the car, which is about maybe 30 feet from the house, out in the snow, closed the door, and I proceeded to just yell. <laughs> and my language was not as healthy or as godly as it needed to be. And I could see in the door of the farmhouse my son Matthew looking at me. And he had a very, very pained and angry expression on his face because we were arguing. But he also, which is what I thought he was angry at, but he came out, sat in the car, and he, he said, I heard everything you said, Daddy, and you used some very bad words. <laughs> and I did. And I said, Matthew, you're right. I ought not to have used those words. And I am sorry I said them. I'm sorry you heard them. Will you forgive me? He was only eight years old. There are a hundred different ways to have handled that particular moment. I may not have handled it the right way, but it was the wisest way at the time. My son is now older and has worked through some things, as have all my children, and I'm sure as have yours and as will yours. But what has held them close to the Lord is that moment when you recognize as a parent, as a leader, as a teacher, you have made that mistake. You're not always going to get it right. Neither did the apostles. But when you don't, don't despair. That's why we have confession. That's why we have words of assurance and affirmation. The same man who writes, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth, is the same man who wrote, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So included in John's teaching of the gospel to these men and women is not only the great and glorious beauty of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but the great and glorious truth of confession, repentance, forgiveness, and moving forward in that belief. So walking in the truth encompasses all of that. It encompasses keeping the gospel, practicing the gospel, acknowledging when we get it right, confessing when we get it wrong. Because that, I tell you, that is going to keep, that is going to keep people faithful to the gospel. It's, it keeps you from becoming a hypocrite. It keeps you from hiding those sins. Because be sure of this, as it says in Numbers 32, 23, your sin will find you out. There's some way that that thing will leak out. So better to get it out, confess it, and deal with it 
rather than hide it and let it be a destructive thing later on. Walk in the truth. That's part and parcel of it. it, it it's really what the writer of the Hebrews talks about as well, where he says, let us hold fast a confession. I think it was already read earlier. Let us hold fast a confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. There's this idea of walking in truth is finding a way to provoke one another as well and stir one another up to good deeds. Walking in the truth means holding tightly to Jesus as a source of our salvation and hope of everlasting life. It means actively looking for ways that we can stir one another up to love and good deeds. It's, it's why we encourage people to get involved with things like the open door or lighthouse uh, ministry and things like that, to be able to find some way to communicate and to share the, the power of the gospel through what we do. It's why we encourage as, as pastors and, and DG leaders, our, everyone to practice what Jesus preaches as well as doing everything possible to encourage one another to, to keep meeting regularly for gathered worship, for Bible study and for prayer. Walking in the truth means focusing on the necessity of the church as well as treasuring its beauty. And I want to be careful there too, because you know, we're, we, we're, we're Reformed, we're Protestants. You know, we, we know the church is important, but we also realize the church is a creation of the gospel. The church does not sit in authority of the gospel. The gospel sits over, is an authority over the church. We derive our identity and our doctrine from what the Bible says, not from what the church says. If anything, the church simply affirms what the scripture teaches. It doesn't judge what the scripture is and determine what it says. We're not in that particular category. So the necessity of the church is we just sort of look down to how we're gonna break down the rest of the message. It's gonna look at these three things, these three topics. We're, we're gonna use John, uh, 3 John 4 as our last point, but we're gonna establish the necessity of the church is grounded in its present mission. We're going to see that in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Then the beauty of the church is seen by how well we care for one another. And that's just, we're going to take a very brief look at Colossians 3, 12 to 15. And then the last point, the necessity of the church inspires present and enduring faithfulness to Jesus and his gospel. So let's look at that first point. And I've, we spent a couple of, this is like the third time, I think, the third week we're looking at Matthew 28. Uh, the Great Commission. And that's because that's the vision for the church. Not just Maranatha, but the church as a whole. This is, this is why we exist. We exist to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them everything Jesus commanded. That's it. You want a vision? There it is. <laughs> How you work out that vision then becomes the particular ministry of a particular local church. Because Matthew 28 tells us, if it tells us anything, that our mission is global in scope. It's, it's certainly local, because when Jesus then in Acts 1, before the disciples go into uh, Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, he tells them, you're going to be my witnesses when the Spirit comes upon you. And you'll start in Jerusalem, and it'll spread to Judea, it'll spread to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. So all discipleship, if you will, starts locally. It starts wherever your Jerusalem is. And for most of us, that's going to be our family. 
and then it may spread to our, our extended family or our workplace, and then our community, and then beyond. That's why we, we stress so much a, a matter of discipleship, of training, and of teaching, because we want we want everyone, including ourselves, to see that the necessity of the church depends and is expressed, rather, through its mission. That if we're going to work to advance uh, the kingdom of God here, not only in Englewood Cliffs or in Bergen County or wherever where you have been placed, uh, this requires that we create and, be, and become a, a, a culture that is missional in its outlook one that's committed to promoting the gospel as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To be, you know, in Jared Wilson's phrase, a gospel-driven church to encourage the expansion of God's kingdom by helping those who serve the Lord not only beyond these shores, but also locally as well. And by locally, I mean not just the various ministries that we support, but I'm talking about the pastors, the DG leaders, the deacons, the hospitality people, the M Kids director, the M Kids leaders, to encourage them, to pray for them, to build them up so that they can then sense the, the support of uh, the local body. Our vision for Maranatha is that we continue to grow and develop as a community that has a missional outlook, that is, in a sense, a missional culture. Um, we want to create that through the, the ministries that we support. There's a, a book written by a man named J.R. Woodard, and he talks about what it means to create a missional culture. And I'll read the quote to you. He says, creating a missional culture helps the church live out her calling to be a sign of the kingdom, pointing people to the reality beyond what we can see, a foretaste of the kingdom where we can grow to love one another as Christ loves us, and an instrument in the hands of God to bring more of heaven to earth in concrete ways. For the church to be a credible sign, foretaste, and instrument, it needs to be a community rich with the fruit of the Spirit. So when we talk about the necessity of the church, when we talk about the possibility of folks moving on from Maranatha to another body to worship, our desire is to create such a culture of mission and community and, and a vision for the promotion of the gospel that that is how you will evaluate the next body of believers to whom you will connect and join. And that is how you will hold, in a sense, our own body accountable to how well we are paying attention to the necessity of the church and its mission in fulfilling it. Because a church that has a missional culture, which I do believe we have here at Maranatha, is one that values the, the beauty and the necessity of the church. And it sees the church as an important thing, not just in terms of its ability to reach its community, but it's in, in its ability to encourage everyone to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I, mean, I'm, I think many of the men, I'm hoping many of the men, are still riding the wave from our retreat with Pastor Allen, and he encouraged us to treasure God's word, to store it in our heart, to dive deeply into it. And as I stressed a couple of weeks ago, that the more you treasure God's word, the more you're going to treasure Christ. And the more that you treasure Christ, the more you will treasure his mission. The more you treasure his mission, the more you will treasure the people that God has surrounded you with to share the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of Christ with them. 
The necessity of the church is this is where you become the, the persons that God has called you to be. It's where we gather together, not only to worship him, but then to receive the encouragement from uh, our pastors and elders and the, the power of the spirit to go out and be salt and light. We encourage everyone to practice what Jesus preaches by doing good works, by making disciples. And for, for us, some of us in the immediate sense, your disciples are your children. It may expand then to your friends and whatever um, <clears throat> circle of friends you have there. And it will expand then even further to your discipleship group. It may extend also to your extended family and your community. But to be aware that you have been called to be part of this church so that you can participate in a mission that is grand and glorious and great. It's why some of you are here. Because someone at some point, either from Maranatha or from another church, shared with you the gospel, discipled you in the gospel, showed you the gospel, lived out the gospel. Because these things, these points that I'm talking about, are more than just intellectual things. There's an old story, it's an old, old joke told about a young minister who was asked to preach his very first sermon uh, at some country church somewhere, not me, this is not an autobiographical thing, it's an anecdotal thing, it could be, who knows if it's true or not. But the poor young guy steps into the pulpit and his palms were sweaty, beads of sweat on his forehead, hands trembling, he, his message was a simple one, it was Psalm 23, and he gripped the pulpit and the pulpit began to shake, and finally he composed himself and he just managed to squeak out, after he read the scripture, some things <clears throat> are better felt then telt, and then he left. But he's right in one sense. These things that I'm sharing with you, these points, they have an intellectual power. But that intellectual sense, that knowledge has to be translated into something experiential. Remember you know, what 2 Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in the experience of grace, which will give you a thirst for the knowledge of Christ. And as that thirst is satisfied, you begin to experience more of grace, and it begins this cycle. So you can only appreciate the necessity of the church by being involved in the life of the church. This is something that you just cannot stand aloof from. It's the difference between watching, if some of you I know are watching the World Cup and you're involved in a great debate, is it football or soccer? Depends on what part of the world you come from. But it's one thing to watch it on your television screen. It's another thing to watch it live in the stands. But to fully appreciate the experience, you've got to be on the pitch. You've got to be in the match. You've got to hear the crowd. You've got to hear the witnesses. You've got to be part of a team that is encouraging you to do your best or at least to try your best because we cannot always do our best, but we can try our best. And the necessity of the church will never be realized on an individual basis unless we are willing to participate in its life and in its mission and in its ministry, whether it's here or someplace else. It may be a trite thing to say, but it still is true that church is in fact not a spectator sport. 
It requires involvement. It, it requires engagement. God did not save us simply by snapping his fingers or by speaking into existence our salvation as he did speak into existence the world. But he saved us how? By becoming flesh, by entering into our time and space, by becoming acquainted with our sorrows and with our griefs, by understanding what it meant to feel pain and hunger and loneliness and betrayal. So if you want to appreciate the necessity of the church, you need to get involved in the life of the church. That's why we stress membership. That's why we stress committing to a body. Become part of its mission. Become part of its life. Become part of its vitality. Become part of its joy. Become part of the tapestry. Because your experience, wherever you've been, benefits and can be used and woven into a beautiful thing created by God. That's the necessity. The beauty of the church comes through caring for one another. Paul talks about this in Colossians 3.15. A famous passage in which he's talking about the new life that we have in Christ. Put on then, he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord also has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which, you, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So an important part of keeping our covenant promise is practicing these virtues here. And, our, and by emphasizing them and stressing them, we would, we would want not only to practice them here, but should the Lord lead to another place, you would carry these virtues, <laughs> learned and practiced here, to wherever else uh, God would take you. So to have a compassionate heart is to, is to demonstrate a mercy that flows outward from the very center of our feelings and emotions, our desires and passions, our thoughts and moral decisions. It is to, to think about others ahead of yourselves, which is always hard to do when you're driving in New Jersey traffic. You, you know, a guy's trying to merge and, he, and you're in the right-hand lane, if, you, if some of you drive in the right-hand lane, now it's a contest. Who's going to yield? I got the right away, but he's coming hard. Or it zips by you and he cuts you off. Compassionate heart. Compassionate heart that reaches out to someone who's in need. A compassionate heart that looks or listens to the hardship or the suffering of a fellow believer. And rather than thinking, glad it's not me. Find some way to either minister by presence, by just listening, praying even silently in that moment. And then the way that Jesus says we give by not letting the right hand know what the left hand is doing, we do something for that person without taking credit for it, without them even knowing it. We just do it. 
we either in, invite them to a meal, we provide for them some form of benevolence, or we tell others about the particular need. Hey, how can we help in this instance? What can we do? That is a compassionate heart. It's considering others as more significant than ourselves. It's a matter of kindness as well, which is a simple generosity. Generosity of time, a generosity of whatever monetary means we may have. Whatever John says this in, in 1 John, if, if someone has worldly goods and sees their brother or sister in need and doesn't share with them, that's not right. If God is blessed, bless others. And to do that with humility. I love, um, I think it's in uh, J.B. Phillips' translation of Romans 12. He talks about humility as having a sane estimate of your own capabilities. Don't tell that to any NFL or NBA basketball player. Right? Or baseball player, for that matter. Or any athlete. But for Christians, to have a sane estimate of our own abilities. To realize whatever ability we have, it's a gift from God. So this, our boast is not so much in our ability. Our boast is in the God who gives us the power to be kind to others. And then, of course, to have patience, which is simply the ability to keep calm when provoked. Uh, as a parent, that's always a stretch, right? Or even at work. Bearing with one another, putting up with others, even when they let us down. I'm reminded of, of Peter's question to Jesus. How many times should I forgive? Right? Up to seven times? Because the rabbis, you know, the rabbis said three times, three strikes, and you're out. And Jesus said, no, oh, 70 times seven, which means an infinite amount. Bearing with one another. Putting up with one another, even when they let you down. And then the key one here, too, is if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you think of the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew's gospel, forgiven a huge amount of debt, a huge amount of debt. And then he runs into a coworker who owes him like 15 cents and he throws him in prison. We, when the offense is against us, we magnify it. When we've committed the offense, we minimize it. Oh, it's not that bad. I didn't mean it. You're taking it the wrong way. Fess up, acknowledge it, and then forgive as you have been forgiven. And he places a responsibility, does Paul, for all of these things on, on us. So on the one who's wronged, they are responsible for forgiving. They are responsible for letting go. The one who has offended must confess and acknowledge. The, the beauty of the church is when we care for one another by doing these things, that we see... The world sees a group of people who are practicing these virtues. Just look at Twitter. If you say one thing that violates the current cultural standard, but I mean, I'm not on Twitter, but you try it. Just say a man is a man and see what you get. Or a woman is a woman and see what happens to you. Or that marriage is a relationship, a covenant relationship between one man and one woman. Just see what happens. You're, in the church, that ought not be. 
In the church, when offense is made, forgiveness is the answer, not canceling. When sin is committed, confession is the proper response. Not denial, not cover-up, not any kind of obfuscation, not, my words were taken out of context. You simply don't understand. I mean, I know what I said, but you're misunderstanding them. You just acknowledge it. The beauty of the church is a group of people who are committed to the truth, doing the truth, speaking the truth, and showing the truth in all of these things. That's why Paul says at the end, love is the thing that ties all of this together. It binds all of these virtues because it's, it's the very thing from which we derive our existence, right? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It's love that drove Jesus to the cross. Imagine Jesus dying without loving the Father. Imagine Jesus dying without loving us. Well, I guess I got to do this for you ungrateful lot. I, my, my, uh, my brother has a, a coffee mug, has these little, like, I don't know, bird-like figures, and, and it sentences, we the unwilling, doing the impossible for the uh, ungrateful, <laughs> right? We the unwilling are doing the impossible for the ungrateful. Jesus doesn't think that way. He goes willingly to the cross for an ungrateful people so that by dying for us, we might become grateful people who will then demonstrate to the world what it means to be forgiven, saved, grateful, compassionate, kind, forgiving, loving. Love is what adds to the beauty of the church. As you remember some years ago, there was a horrific killing in the Amish community. One of their own walked into a schoolhouse and he, had, he, he, he killed some young, I think some young girls. And the community's response to this, this man and his family was to forgive. It stunned the outside world. They couldn't realize, couldn't figure out why, how could they do that? That's the beauty of the church. It's Jesus hanging on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Is Jesus turning to the, the thief on the cross saying, today I tell you, you'll be with me in paradise. Is Jesus appearing to Paul on the road to Damascus as he's about to persecute more Christians and Paul recognizing that even as a chief of sinners, God's mercy was poured upon him, lavished upon him, and so on and so forth. It's the ability to reconcile the un unimaginable sin that we commit with the unimaginable love that God has in forgiving us for that sin. And so how we live reflects the reign and rule of God in our heart because the, the end of it, Paul says, is let the peace of Christ rule or play umpire in your heart. Let the rule of Christ be the referee. Let the peace of Christ govern what you say and what you think. Because that's the thing that's going to determine whether we're compassionate, kind, humble, patient, bear with one another, and forgiving, and loving. All of that comes through Christ. All of that is a way of demonstrating the beauty of the church. And then Paul ends all of that with his command to be thankful. This heart that is changed, that is transformed by the gospel, is also a heart that is thankful the heart, which is that decision-making, value-determining, and priority-establishing clearinghouse of everything we think and do. 
We're salt and light by God's grace. And we demonstrate the beauty of the church by being such. And then the last, the last point, that the necessity of the church inspires present and enduring faithfulness to Christ and his gospel. This is what John says in his message. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I am, <clears throat> you know, those of you who were here during the whole candidating process, me, you know that I have served in other places. And I, I, I was thinking about this in light of this message because the whole message is about, you know, at, you know encouraging people to stay put but if they move, right, carry out the spirit of the covenant. Well, you know, we were in Massachusetts, and then we were in North Dakota, then we were in southwestern Ontario, then we were in northwest Ohio, we were on Cape Cod, and now we're here. And it's, it's interesting and always gratifying to me, because <laughs> um, I'm not a perfect pastor, I'm not a perfect leader, I'm not a perfect teacher. But when I hear of um, the churches that I served, they're still hanging in there. Not necessarily because of me, but because you know, I contribute just one small part. I, I laid a foundation or, or, or I did a particular repair job and one particular congregation and moved on. It seems to be what I do. But it's very gratifying to hear that the church in North Dakota and in Canada, struggling but still there. Church in Ohio, the church in Cape Cod, still, still there, still, some of them flourishing more than others, some of them still getting by simply because of being located in a rural community. But it's, it's interesting to watch and to participate in their life and then to you know, get cards from people uh, from those other churches to say, hey, do you remember me? You know, and so forth, and we have a, an exchange. I remember, <laughs> um, it was this in Ohio, it was a few years ago, and I got an email um, from a, a young woman who said, Pastor Malanga, you, you uh, may not remember, but 25 years ago, you married my husband and me. And I, I went, first of all, I said, yeah, I do remember who they were, but I was more like 25 years. It's like, wow, I've been doing this a long time. And I was invited back to, uh, you know, they were having this, I think, the 100th anniversary of the, of the church. And then another time, the, the church I left in Canada um, invited me to come back to, to preach at their, uh, their 25th anniversary service. So those kinds of things, I don't say, please hear me out, I'm not, <laughs> it sounds like I'm being self-aggrandizing. If they didn't like me, they wouldn't ask me back, is what I'm saying. <laughs> right? If they weren't still walking in the truth, I don't think I would have been invited back. Um, even places where, where things were a little shaky or rocky, there's still a great affection, for us for them and them for us. I take that to be a work of God's grace. John is, I think the essence of what he's saying is, is that. That the idea of the necessity of the church, carrying out the mission of Christ, sharing the gospel, living out the gospel, showing the beauty of the church, encourages this kind of present and enduring faithfulness. Um, we do that here through benevolence, we do that here through discipleship, we do that here through discipleship groups and teaching. A gospel-driven church is, is simply one in which every member values the beauty and necessity of the church. The necessity of the church is grounded in its mission. It's, uh, it's seen by how well we care for one another. And it inspires a present and enduring faithfulness. 
So I'll end with this because the, 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 the aim of this was that covenant promise that if we leave this place for whatever reason, and hopefully we leave well, uh, our hope is that your experience as a, a member of Maranatha will be and will remain wholly positive. We understand that the time may come when some will find it necessary, either because of job or some other reason, to move on to another community. And those reasons will vary from person to person. It's not unusual for members of a church to arrive at a place where they feel that maybe the church that they're attending just doesn't meet their needs or they just feel that God is leading them someplace else. If any time that happens, our encouragement to you as elders, and it has been, people have come to us and have talked with us and have expressed what they're thinking. And we've had an opportunity to counsel them and to encourage them. Some have left, some have stayed. If that's where you're at, my encouragement to you is that come talk to us, right? Uh, the, what is a, the, the modern trend nowadays is quiet quitting, right? Re remote work has made that entirely possible where you just, you just don't show up because you're at home and it's comfortable at home and you just don't turn on Zoom and you just silently just slip away um, in church speak, we talk about leaving through the back door, never, never saying a word. We don't want that to be the case. We don't ever want that to be the case. Our preference, obviously, is that everyone stay, but we're realistic about that. We want everyone who attends and becomes a member of Maranatha to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We want each and every person who attends here for any length of time to have a, a growing esteem for Christ, to demonstrate a discernible spirit of repentance, to continue and to maintain a dogged devotion to God's word, to develop and then continue to nurture an interest in theology and doctrine, and then as a thing that ties it all together, to demonstrate an evident love for God and neighbor through the necessity, the beauty, and enduring quality of Jesus Christ expressed and glorified through his church. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, um, I have done what I tend to do, which is to wander to and fro through various topics related to your word. But all of this, Lord God, has one aim, that our vision of you would be enlarged, that our love for you would expand, and that our desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ would continue until the day you call us home, where it will go on forever, where we will behold you in all of your beauty and your glory. Help us now, in whatever way we can, through the help of your spirit, to shine out with the glory of Christ that others might see, others might know, and others might worship him. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.